This month marks both the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution in 1917 and the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation in 1517. And I'd like to invite us to reflect on these two events in turn this morning and next Sunday. And I know for some of you, a history sermon makes your heart go pitter-patter, and that's great. For those of you who that's not the case, stick with me. I think I'll convince you by the end of this morning that there, there really are some good insights and lessons for us from these looking back at these world historical events. So to begin responding to that question of what we might learn, I invite you to consider one of my favorite quotes from the late American pragmatist philosopher Richard Rorty. In an autobiographical essay, he writes that when I was 12, the most salient books on my parents' shelves were two red-bound volumes. I invite you to think back. What were the books that really mattered in your household, or lack thereof, which is important to talk about too. He says for him, those two volumes were The Case of Leon Trotsky and Not Guilty. These made up the report of the Dewey Commission of Inquiry into the Moscow Trials. He said, now, I never read them with the wide-eyed fascination that I brought to books like Kraft Ebing's Psychopathia Sexualis, but, he says, I thought of them in the way in which other children thought of their family Bible. They were books that radiated redemptive truth and moral splendor. And if I were a really good boy, I would say to myself, I should have read not only the Dewey Commission reports, but also Trotsky's history of the Russian Revolution, which I'll confess I started many times but never managed to finish. Here's the key line, both for this Sunday and next. He says that in the 1940s, the Russian Revolution and its betrayal by Stalin were for me what the incarnation of Christ and its betrayal by Catholics had been to precocious, precocious little Lutherans 400 years earlier. He concludes, I grew up knowing that all decent people were, if not Trotskyites, they were at least socialists. And working as an unpaid office boy during my 12th winter, I carried drafts of press releases from the Workers' Defense League office, and on the subway I would read these documents that I found myself carrying at a young age, and they told me a lot about what factory workers do to union organizers, what plantation owners do to sharecroppers, what the White Locomotive Engineers Union was trying to do to colored firemen whose jobs the white men now wanted since diesel engines were replacing the coal-fired steam engines. So at 12, he concludes, I knew that the point of being human was to spend one's life fighting against injustice. That's one among many possible lessons that one might glean from studying the Protestant Reformation and the Russian Revolution today. Turning our t attention today specifically to the Russian Revolution, it's impossible for me, and I encourage you, as Mary shared earlier, what's your relationship over time to the Russian Revolution, if any? For me, it's impossible to consider without recalling the ways that it's impacted my own family. My, wa my wife's great-grandfather immigrated to this country um, in 1905 in the wake of the Kiev pogrom, a massacre of Jewish people in Ukraine, which was at that time part of the Russian Empire. My brother-in-law, married to my wife's identical twin sister, came to this country with his parents and two sisters in the early 80s, just prior to the Soviet Union dissolving in 1991. If we begin zooming out to a larger perspective, why are we bothering to talk about the Russian Revolution on its 100th anniversary? One answer is that it really mattered, that in 1917, the February Revolution in Russia, it overthrew a dynasty that had lasted more than 300 years. 
reminds us that things can change. That same year, during the October Revolution, the Bolsheviks seized power, establishing the world's first communist state on a territory that covered one-sixth of the globe, from the Arctic in the north to the Black Sea in the south, from the Baltic in the west to the Far East, and inspired communist movements and revolutions around the globe. So on major anniversaries, questions arrive, not, arise of not only what happened a long time ago, but also what is the significance both then and now. And responding to that question of significance requires us to wrestle with the ways that historical memory is constructed. It isn't done in a neutral way. How are we taught to tell our history? And why? Who decides who benefits and who is harmed? Even with the benefit of a century to think about it and countless pages of scholarship written about the legacy of the Russian Revolution, the answers to the questions of significance are not easily agreed upon. Is the major outcome of the Russian Revolution in 1917 the millions killed by Stalin's collectivization campaigns in the 1930s? Or should we focus on the remarkable survival of the Soviet Union in the face of the Nazi onslaught and its rise to become one of the world's two superpowers in the 1960s? Should the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1989 to 1981 be viewed as the inevitable outcome of the Russian Revolution 72 years earlier, or was it the result of poor choices by Gorbachev and other Soviet leaders in the 1980s? Speaking for myself, I'm a child of the 80s. As I was coming of age in South Carolina in the middle of the Reagan Revolution, this country was in a terrifying Cold War nuclear arms race with the Russians, who were frequently depicted, I knew them as those bad guys, right? I was almost six in 1983 when President Reagan called the Soviet Union an evil empire. So my earliest notions of the Russian Revolution were of an event that was the poisonous root that grew into our nation's greatest enemy. Now he's my brother-in-law, right? Uh, But that's just one historical perspective. I invite you to also consider two different perspectives as points of comparison. First, let's turn back the clock four decades to the end of the Second World War. If this were 1945, at that time, many would have defended the 1915 Russian Revolution, seeing it as despite its faults, giving rise to a state that made a massive contribution to the defeat of fascism. After all, in World War II, the Soviet Union was part of the Allied powers fighting in coalition against the Axis powers of Germany, Japan, and Italy. We fast forward instead to the present, when I hardly know where to start with the complex factors that seem to be underneath how different swaths of our society perceive Russia and either defend it or accuse it. To list only a few headlines from the New York Times during this month alone, Senate intelligence heads warn that Russian election meddling continues. Google finds accounts connected to Russia bought election ads. Putin says Russia has many friends in the U.S. who can mend relations. Now, I'm very tempted to go on a tangent right now about contemporary U.S.-Russian relations, but I'm not going to do that. Suffice it to say instead that the significance of the same events, these, the same things happened in 1917 in the Russian Revolution, but they look very different depending on who you're talking to and their motivations, as well as whether your vantage point is 1945, 1985, or today, or some other point. The one angle on contemporary Russia that may be particularly important to actually consider is the ways that Vladimir Putin, the current president of Russia, is attempting to shape historical memory around the centenary of the Russian Revolution. 
Putin has been in office since 2012. His current office is eligible for re-election in March of this coming year to a second consecutive term. But previously, he was prime minister from 99 to 2000, president from 2000 to 2008, and prime minister from 2008 to 2012, and really in charge that entire time. And when examined through the archetypes of Russian history, Putin's tendencies toward dictatorship coupled with his long tenure make him look a lot like a... Czar, exactly right. That fact is not lost on him. Whereas Putin eagerly draws from most aspects of Russian culture and history, he's been a fervent devotee of the Russian Orthodox Church, uh, of Soviet military might. He's even been a fan of the occasional historical czar. But Lenin and the Bolsheviks are out of bounds in Putin's Russia. In contemporary Russia, even the word revolution is essentially taboo. If you ask the Kremlin why they have not scheduled any major commemorations to mark the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution, they'll give you the official party line. Russia remains too divided over the consequences of that fateful year, so we're just not going to talk about it. The truth is that Putin loathes the very idea of revolution, not to mention the thought of remembering Russians dancing in the streets for the overthrow of a dictator or any ruler. Remember that guiding question. How are we taught to remember history? Who decides who benefits? We've seen how Putin is trying to control the narrative today. But what if we turn back the clock a hundred years? What if we asked Tsar Nicholas II, the last emperor of Russia, who was forced to abdicate his throne? He would say, I am the only legitimate heir to a dynasty that has lasted almost 400 years. I sincerely believe that I am God's appointed representative, and I do not have the right, even if I wanted to do so, to compromise my power. As he began increasingly to see himself in a precarious situation, he said things like, it is not my job to come into right relationship with the Russian people. It is their job to get back in right relationship with me. Convenient, as Mel Brooks said, it's good to be the king, right? Until until it's not. <laughs> what about the 1917 revolutionaries? What would they tell us? Well, first of all, we can see a lot just from their name for themselves. Bolshevik is derived from the Russian word for majority or of the majority. What does that remind us of? Sounds a lot like Occupy Wall Street, and we are the 99%, right? We're the majority. As the saying goes, history doesn't exactly repeat itself, but it tends to rhyme. But allow me to be clear, though, that just because historical themes tend to recapitulate themselves does not mean that studying history can so simply allow us to predict the future with any certainty. If you'll indulge me in another quick glance in the mirror at our own country today... There's a strong argument to be made that until election night, the vast majority of people around the world, I think pretty clearly, including Donald Trump himself, did not think he would be elected president of the United States. Yet here we find ourselves a mere two and a half weeks away from another anniversary, the one-year anniversary of that fateful election evening. I say that less from a place of hope or despair, depending on your political proclivities, and more in the the spirit of seeking appropriate humility in the face of history's often unpredictable changes, which can be for the good of the whole or for the good of the few. These things cut both ways. What I have in mind from the Russian Revolution is that Lenin famously remarked in January of 1917, the first month of that fateful year, just months before the Tsar's regime was to collapse, he said, we of the older generation, we may not live long enough to see the decisive battles of this revolution. 
He sure got that one wrong. But it turns out the czar got it wrong in an even more costly way. And in 1917, the tides of history seemed to be turning inexorably toward the Bolshevik vision. Consider the soaring aspirations they inscribed the next year into their constitution. Abolition of all exploitation of man by man, the complete elimination of the division of society into classes, the ruthless suppression of the exploiters, the establishment of a socialist organization of society, and the victory of socialism in all countries around the world. But soon the victorious revolutionaries found themselves facing the dynamic that has stymied countless politicians over time. In the words of former New York Governor Mario Cuomo, you can campaign in poetry, but you gotta govern in prose. And in the years following the revolution, the collapse of industry together with grave food shortages led to the near breakdown of urban life in Russia. Against the background of perishing cold, poor diet, unsanitary conditions, and health facilities at a breaking point, epidemic diseases erupted on a, a devastating scale, killing millions. And although Lenin was wrong in January 1917 when he said his generation would likely not live long enough to see the revolution, he wasn't too far from the mark about himself because he died almost seven years later to the day at the age of 53 from a massive stroke. Trotsky was exiled almost exactly four years later and Stalin's henchmen ultimately assassinated him. Here we can recall the line from Rorty earlier that in the 1940s, the Russian Revolution and its betrayal by Stalin were for me what the incarnation of Christ and its betrayal by Catholics had been to precocious little Lutherans 400 years before. Now, in both those points, it depends, you know, the Catholics tell a different story. We'll talk about it next week. Uh, to be fair, there are also ways in which Lenin erred in laying the groundwork for someone like Stalin. Lenin, for instance, famously said, the will of the proletariat, that is the, uh, the working class, may sometimes be carried out by a dictator. In other words, Lenin bears considerable responsibility for the institutions and the culture that allowed Stalin to come to power. Crucially, he bequeathed a structure of power that favored a single leader instead of a more democratic polity accountable to the consent of the governed. Moreover, if Trotsky had become general secretary instead of Stalin and hadn't been assassinated, the horrors of Stalinism would likely have not come to pass, but nevertheless, economic backwardness and international isolation would have still critically constrained his ability to govern successfully. And therein lies another crucial lesson for us today from the Russian Revolution. Changing the warm body at the top of the pyramid doesn't change the underlying structures of the rest of society. It certainly doesn't change them overnight. For instance, as the Bolshevik regime began to stabilize, these deeper structuring forces of Russian history began to reassert themselves. Forces like geography, huge distances, scattered populations, inadequate communications, things like climate, the vulnerability of agriculture to severe weather and drought, no matter who's in charge, despite their best intentions. Things like geopolitics, the difficulty of defending frontiers, the costs of maintaining a huge army over such a giant area, the constraints of the market, the paucity of capital, the ingrained patterns of religious and patri- of a religious and patriarchal peasant culture, and the traditions of bureaucratic government. 
To again briefly touch on parallels from today, if there's one thing that Barack Obama and Donald Trump both have in common, it's that they successfully campaigned as change makers. Put me in charge and I'll bring change, right? But once in office, they both encountered these recalcitrant structural realities that make creating change next to impossible. Obama promised change we can believe in. Trump promised to make America great again. The Bolsheviks promised that the revolution would elevate working people to the status of a ruling class. But even with respect to basic working and living conditions, the revolution brought at its best limited improvements. For now, regarding the lessons that we might learn from looking back from the vantage point of a century later on the Russian Revolution, I'll conclude by inviting you to consider the final paragraph from the most recent book by the great Oxford historian of the Russian Revolution, written for the centenary of the Russian Revolution by S.A. Smith. He writes, we should be honest that the Russian Revolution ended in tyranny, yet it raised fundamental questions about how justice and freedom and equality, how can they be reconciled? Those questions have not gone away. Its answers were flawed, but it opened up certain progressive possibilities that the dismal record of Stalinism and Maoism should not blind us to. We should see that so much conspires to make us acquiesce to the world as it is to discourage belief that it can be organized in a more just and rational fashion. That's precisely what the Bolsheviks were trying to do, to reorganize the world in a more just and rational fashion. But notice this next sentence in particular. Their revolution wrought calamity on a scale commensurate with the transformation in the human condition that they sought to achieve. The, the havoc they wrought was equal to the good they were trying to do. There's, it's a classic example of the road to hell being paved with good intentions. That intent doesn't always equal impact. It can sometimes, that's what you risk. It can sometimes have precisely the opposite effect. And a hundred years on, it's easier to appreciate the illusions under which they labored than the ideals that inspired them. Yet we shall not understand the Russian Revolution unless we see that for all their many faults, the Bolsheviks were fired by outrage. They were fired by outrage at exploitation that lies at the heart of capitalism and at the raging nationalism that led Europe into the carnage that was World War I. Nor will we understand the year of 1917 if we don't make the, an imaginative effort to understand how they saw the world then. To recapture the hope, the idealism, the heroism, the anger, the fear, the despair that motivated them. The burning desire for peace, the deep resentment of a social order riven between the haves and the have-nots. The anger at the injustices that ran straight through Russian society. That is why millions across the world who could not in advance anticipate the horrors that were to come embraced the 1917 revolution as a chance, as a possibility that a new world might be created of justice, equality, and freedom. 
So as you prepare to go from this place, I'll leave you with one final thought. People that study um, revolutions have noticed that it's often – it's not just what any individuals do. It's often the, the social structures that make the difference that of whether – sometimes the metaphor is used, are you in a mountain or a valley moment for revolution? That if you're in a valley moment, then all those structural forces like economics, are the, is the elite on your side? Is the military on your side? Then those – then you may be trying to push the snowball to become a revolution, but you're in the valley. So you're pushing – it's a Sisyphean struggle. You're trying to push it. But as the – there's five factors. I'm not going to go into all of them right now. But as those start to change, as the elites get disillusioned and alienated from the powers that be, um, as economics collapse, all of a sudden the walls of the valley collapse, and all of a sudden you're on top of a valley, and when you push that snowball – Revolution starts and, and starts to often get out of control. We can, we'll talk some next week about the ways in which Luther would have been, would be appalled by the results of the Protestant Reformation, by the state of religion in the world today. So, you know, it, it gets away from you sometime. Uh, the, uh, so, and, uh, and that, the other piece, the military piece, I think may be also important to mention, you know, is your cause really just? Because that often tends to be the turning point for revolutions. That's the point when the dictator gets on the plane, when he orders the military to fire on the nonviolent protesters, and they don't. He just lost. <laughs> Usually it's a he. And so the, whether we're talking about world historical revolutions or a change you're trying to make in your life, I invite you to pay attention to those ends and means. Are you, are you, are your, the ways you're reaching it, are they commensurate with the world you're trying to create? So may you continue your journey in love. Care for one another and care for this one earth. Do justice and make peace. And whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. May you live boldly and with thanksgiving.